0: Wow. Well, that was a blast. I, uh, you know, that was a piece arranged for eight hands. I offered a ninth hand, but they just couldn't fit it in there. Um, What an amazing start to uh, this sermon. Happy 5th of July. Uh, Today, after the 4th of July, that's why I said 5th of July, did you know, actually, in, in, uh, independence continues to be celebrated around the world. In Algeria, Cape Verde, and Venezuela, they are celebrating their Independence Day today. So it's still Independence Day. Yay! All right. I, I know uh, it looks like most of you survived. I don't see any singe marks out there, so good to see you here. Um, another thing that we are celebrating... Oh, that's interesting. So I was going to say, we're done with the 90-day challenge. Aren't we, right? How many of you have been doing the 90-day challenge for the last... Okay, many of you. Yes. Are you in your booklets? Are we done? Yes, we are. Aren't we? Yep. Okay, good. So I want to celebrate that. I mean, a lot of you have been doing this, and it's it's a wonderful thing that we've been able to do. One of the things I've enjoyed about this is that as a church, we've been able to be in the same scriptures together to pray about them, to study them together, to even experience them together on Sunday mornings in our sermons. And um, if you're visiting, by the way, and you don't know what the 90-day challenge is, first 90-day challenge, we looked at all the Gospels, 89 chapters of the four Gospels, and we went through and read them in 90 days, and we asked the question, what am I learning about Jesus? And the second 90-day challenge, we began to go through the, the, the book of Acts, and we began to ask questions about the Holy Spirit and, and be, be more reflective uh, and take longer as we went through and read about the Holy Spirit. Well, we are, are finished with the 90-day challenge. Many of you have been asking, are we going to do another day, a 90-day challenge? Not quite, but in the fall, we are, are planning on doing something very similar where we're studying Scripture together. We'll have devotions. We'll have a small group curriculum. It's going to be called The Story. And we're going to go through the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. I'm very excited about that. Um, but we're not done with Acts yet. We're not done with Acts yet because there's so much great stories in Acts that we just want to continue to, to dwell in and to, and to see and continue to look at how is the Holy Spirit moving here in, in Acts? Um, this, this second part of Acts, as we go into it, there's a, there's a distinct shift that happens. The first part, we began to see how the church is formed in Jerusalem and uh, the surrounding area of Judea and, and, and into Samaria and we witness how the Holy Spirit is forming his church. And we learned a lot from that. We learned a lot about the Holy Spirit and what he does in the life of the church. Now there's the shift as, as uh, the church begins to move outwards. It begins to do missions in the world at large. Remember, um, uh, Jesus told the apostles that they would go into the world from uh, beginning in Jerusalem, then into Judea, and then into Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And so this latter part of Acts is about going into the ends of the earth, and we begin to see the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And it is quite an adventure. Um, we are going to try and cover a lot of it in these next uh, couple weeks, um, six weeks or so. And we're going to kind of jump around a little bit. For example, we didn't do chapter 12, which is kind of sad because it's a great story. But we want to hit some of the major points as we go along. So today we are in chapter 13, Acts chapter 13. I want to give a shout out to Pastor Bill. He memorized his passage last week, like Pastor Mark has been doing. How many of you have been enjoying that when Pastor Mark memorizes? Isn't it wonderful? It's amazing to see him memorize it, and it really draws you into the text, Um, and it is so wonderful that I am going to let Pastor Mark own it, (laughs) and um, it'll be his thing. So I'm going to read today from Acts chapter 13. <laughs> so join with me as we read and find out what the Holy Spirit is doing, how he is on the move, starting in verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went. And I'll stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, this morning as we study your scripture Lord, I ask that this would not be an exercise of intellect, Lord, but that this would be an exercise of the heart. Lord, as we hear and grasp and understand not only what your will was for the church of Antioch, Lord, today may we understand and know what your will is for the church of Chapel Hill. Lord, may we be open and willing and receptive to what you would have us to do. Lord, by your spirit and by your name we ask in your name. Amen. So, when we ask, from now on in in this new series that we're venturing into, it's called On the Move. And we want to look at how the Holy Spirit is on the move. And our previous series, when we were doing the 90-day challenge, what we were asking was, what is the Holy Spirit teaching us to do as disciples of Jesus? But now we want to focus our attention on, what is the Holy Spirit doing? How is the Holy Spirit moving in our world? And so as we begin this new part of Acts, and we look in chapter 13, what we see the Holy Spirit doing is sending. The Holy Spirit is sending people out, Saul and Barnabas. And as you you look at this, you realize that this is actually the first time we see in Acts a church commissioning missionaries out into the world. Before, the missionaries were kind of accidental or um, individual. So we saw, you know, uh, persecution drove the church out of Jerusalem. So there are missionaries from that. We saw a guy get um, sucked up and popped right next to an Ethiopian in, a, in, a, in a, um, a road in the middle of nowhere, right? That was kind of an accidental mission thing. But this is the first time we see a church commission missionaries just as we have seen happen here. That's a tradition that's thousands of years old when we, come, when we bring people who are being sent out and lay hands on them, commission them out. This is the first time we see that here in Acts chapter 13 so I want to look at how does the Holy Spirit send? How does the Holy Spirit send these guys out? And so as we look, the first thing that I want us to pay attention to is the Holy Spirit sends by giving a greater perspective. The Holy Spirit sends by giving a greater perspective. Now think about this. The church in Antioch. Antioch uh, is, is a little town in what is modern-day Turkey, kind of right above Syria. And back then it was a major... Uh, part of the Roman Empire, kind of a, uh, one of the three largest cities in the Roman Empire as far as, as, uh, as their spread was concerned. And Antioch wasn't exactly the place for a Christian church to thrive. If you think about it, this is 15 years after Jesus died and, and went up to heaven. So the church, Christians, are very young. They are surrounded by a pagan culture. There was no Judeo-Christian values in Antioch that they could work from and, and agree with. It was completely pagan. There were no Christian bookstores. There were no Christian radio. There were no Christian politicians that they could vote for. They were alone in the world. They were a little outpost of Jesus followers surrounded by pagan influences. So you can imagine if you were in this church that you might have felt a little outnumbered. A little surrounded by the people around you, a little maybe discouraged. I don't know. Maybe it felt like this. So from the movie Lord of the Rings, there's a scene where our our heroes are backed up into a corner in this, this valley in a place called Helm's Deep, it's a citadel, and they are surrounded by the forces of evil, and it looks absolutely hopeless. I don't know about you, but how many of you feel like that today? How many of you feel like we are becoming more and more a minority surrounded by the forces of evil? And becoming more and more hopeless day by day. But actually, I don't think that that's how the church in Antioch felt. I think that the Holy Spirit had a different perspective on what they were doing. And what it was that they were experiencing. And I think it looked more like this. a different kind of scene isn't it we go from hopeless to on the charge and actually this scene in the movie reminded me of a passage in scripture in the book of revelation chapter 19 listen to this john has a vision he says i saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called faithful and true with justice he judges and makes war His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. John wrote this passage not so much to predict the future for the churches that he was writing for, but to tell them what was happening in the present. He wanted the churches in what is now modern-day Turkey to understand that there was a different perspective on what they were experiencing. He wanted them to see the spiritual reality of who they were following, of this man named Jesus, that, in fact, he was on the throne, that, in fact, that he was this warrior sitting aside on top of this white horse, charging into battle, and that we are his church following him into battle. That is the truth of the matter, and that was the truth of the matter for the church in Antioch. A church that is on the defensive does not send out two of their best men. That is not the attitude that is not the perspective they had. And let me remind you, Jesus is never on the defense. I say that again, Jesus is never on the defense. He is always on the offense. He is always on the go, on the move, on the charge. And the question that we have to ask is whether we are going with him. Or not. Even when, when you read about the story of Jesus, you realize that there was a moment in his life when he was mocked. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. And it sure seemed like he was losing. But in fact, he was winning the battle. He won the war. Jesus is never on the defense. He is always on the offense. Matthew chapter 19, he tells Peter, about his church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And if you think about that, you'll realize that gates are a defensive measure. You cannot be attacked by gates. So what he is saying is that the church is on the offense. The church is called to attack the forces of evil. And this is what the Holy Spirit has given to the church in Antioch, and I pray that he gives us this perspective today, a greater perspective on who we are, that we are in fact charging forward with Jesus Christ against the forces of evil in this world. And you may sometimes feel like you are on the defensive. You may sometimes feel like you are surrounded by forces of evil, even as a church. But let me promise you, that is not what is happening. So I encourage you, as you feel that way, ask, how is Jesus on the move? How is the Holy Spirit on the move in this situation? The next thing I see as we are looking at how the Holy Spirit sends people, the Holy Spirit sends by setting people apart. In verse 2, you see that the Holy Spirit actually talks to the church and he says, Set apart for me, Saul and Barnabas, for the work that I have called them to. And this is actually a term that is, is, beckons back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see that same phrase used when God tells uh, the, church, the, the people of Israel to set apart Aaron and his sons to be priests for him. That means that they were literally uh, uh, separated from the people for a distinct purpose or cause. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually uses this in his ministry. If you read his, his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, he says, I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart. So Paul just definitely understood that I'm different. Paul said, I, I'm different. I'm set apart to do something really unique, which was to go to the Gentiles. And that's why we're here sitting in this church. We are the Gentiles. And Paul's ministry ultimately led to this. So yes, he was set apart. But there's a, there's a greater sense to being set apart is is Paul the only one who is set apart? Are missionaries the only ones who are set apart? I would say no. The last time I shared with you guys, one of the things I wanted to draw out is that we are all uniquely gifted. We are all uniquely called to something that, that God has given us to do as, in a service to His church, in a service to His world. In that way, we, we too are set apart. But there's even a greater sense of what it means to be set apart by the Holy Spirit. And we can see this in First Peter chapter 2. He tells the church there, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we see that we, all of us, are actually set apart. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. What does it mean to be set apart? Does it mean we have different clothes? Different hair? We take our kids to a different school? Maybe if you're Amish. But I would suggest that it means something much different than that. It means one thing, really. Love. Love. Being set apart has to do with how we love. Now this last week, uh, unless you were hiding under a rock, you probably heard that the Supreme Court made a ruling in favor of same-sex marriage in our country. And as I was experiencing this while we were in General Assembly in Florida, looking on social media, you saw a lot of people celebrating this. And they would celebrate this with a hashtag that said, love wins. Love wins. And honestly, that made me feel defensive. Because what it insinuated is that anybody who opposed the the ruling by the Supreme Court justices was about hate. Hate. And I had to pause and say, Lord Jesus, if there is any hate in my heart, please take it away from me, because that is not what I am about. So I agreed. love wins, yes. Love wins, it has to. But what did that mean when they were saying this on on social media networks like Twitter and Facebook? What did that mean for our culture? And I realized as I thought about it, what it means is something about acceptance, accommodation. When we see someone and they say that they are some kind of thing, Who they are is what we should accept. And that is what it means to love in today's culture. To accept completely. To embrace whatever somebody says they are without reservation. That is what it means to love. And that's a very appealing way of looking at love. But I found it anemic. I found it lacking. Especially when I began to look at who Jesus was. What kind of love Jesus has. Because when you look at Jesus on the cross... Love is defined not by live and let live as our culture does. That's how I think love is defined by our culture. But Jesus defines it by saying, I die so that others may live. I die so that others may live. That is the love of Jesus. So we, as followers of Jesus, are called to love in that same way. In my family, I die So that my son may live, I die to my selfishness, to my laziness. In my marriage, I die so that my wife may live. In every aspect, in in well-being, in the way that she knows Jesus and sees Jesus. Through the way that I put to death my selfishness, my right to be angry, my laziness. In my neighborhood, I die so that my neighbors may know life, may know Jesus... In my workplace I die so that others may live. This is what it means to love. And it is such a rare thing in our culture. Our culture does not really know what love means. They don't. They don't know what love means. And it's so rare to see this kind of love that when you see it, it is like a match being struck in a dark room. It becomes so obvious that something different is happening here. I think we got a chance to see this in the public sphere recently in Charleston, North Carolina. We saw a man, Dylan Roof, join a Bible study, and an hour into it, he stood up and shot nine people in cold blood. The man was caught, put into jail, and then he was arraigned. And the families of the victims that he shot had a chance to speak to him. This is what they said. I forgive you. You took something very precious of me from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. You know, I forgive you my family forgive you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent. Confess give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ. We welcome you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts, but as we say in a Bible study, We enjoyed you, but may God have mercy on you. It's hard to watch that. But man, when you see that, you cannot doubt for a moment that those people are set apart. That they are different. That the power of the Holy Spirit must have been in them to say those words. To forgive that man for killing their family. That is different. That is what it means to be set apart in this world, to love the people who hate you, to die so that others may live. They had every right in the world to be angry with that man, to assault him with their words, if not more. They laid that down for the opportunity for him to have life, life in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, when we are called by the Holy Spirit to be sent out, this is what it means to be set apart, to be a people who are different, who follow our Lord in the way that He loves. This is what love means, and I will say amen, what love wins. Are you willing to die so that others may know life? So we have seen that when the Holy Spirit sends people, He gives them a greater perspective. We have seen that when the Holy Spirit sends people, He sets them apart. The last thing I want to point out to you is when the Holy Spirit sends people, He calls them into the offensive posture. And I don't mean offensive as in I am offended. I mean offensive versus defensive. What is the offensive posture? It is simply this. The church in Antioch was in a posture of prayer when the Holy Spirit called them. The church in Antioch was worshiping, fasting, and praying. And that is the first thing that they did before the Holy Spirit did anything in their lives. And that is the offensive posture. When the church is on its knees, when it is praying before the Lord, then the Holy Spirit is on the move. When I was in Florida and I was witnessing what was going around in our church um, upon the news of the Supreme Court ruling, I was humbled and I was somewhat grieved because I saw a lot of people racing to their Facebook pages. I saw a lot of people racing to Fox News, to the front page of the newspaper in fear, in bewilderment, in confusion. But I'm afraid I did not hear very much a call to pray. And I believe that is our call. I believe that that is what the Holy Spirit is calling us to do. If we want to be a church that is on the offensive, then the Holy Spirit is calling us to pray. There is no movement of God in history that did not begin with sincere, consistent, Disciplined movements of prayer on the part of the church. No movement of God in history. The Great Awakening. The Billy Graham Crusades. Pentecost. Even this, the church in Antioch sending out two of their greatest men to be missionaries. It didn't begin without prayer. And how would we expect anything to change in our country, in our neighborhoods, in our households, If it does not begin with prayer. How will the Holy Spirit know that we are ready if we have not taken a posture of listening? If we have not taken a posture of beseeching the one who can really, truly change everything? If we are not in that posture, then we are not ready. So I believe that today, that is what the the Holy Spirit is calling us to do, is to be in a posture of prayer. And actually, holy, the, prayer is the, the thing that began it all. Before he set them apart, before he gave them a greater perspective, they were praying. It all begins with prayer. So I want to leave you this morning on this thought of prayer with a, another 90-day challenge. This is an unofficial challenge. You might not hear it again from the pulpit There are no devotional booklets to hand out with this. My challenge to you is for the next 90 days to be disciplined in your prayer. Specifically, I challenge you to spend 15 minutes in prayer. At least 15 minutes. I challenge you to take the literal posture of kneeling. Why? Because when your body is in a posture of humility and of beseeching, it does something to your heart. So if you are able, I challenge you to kneel as you pray. And thirdly, I challenge you that as you pray, to pray specifically, Holy Spirit, move. Move in my neighborhood and pray for specifics. Lord, move in my neighbors who look like they have a broken home. Lord, move in my workplace for Bob, who I know is going through a hard divorce right now. Lord, move in his life. Lord, move in my country. But You know, if you want to see that happen, it begins right here in your own life, in your own sphere of influence. I really believe that God is on the move, that he is on the offense, and the question that we have to ask is, how can I follow him? How am I a part of what the Holy Spirit is doing today in our world?